Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to this week's episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. This week, we're discussing the important topic of how to improve children's pain management. And if you're not aware of the lack of pain management that children or adolescents experience, it's of course because it doesn't receive a lot of attention. But I want to share a vital statistic that this week's guest speaker shared with me. Did you know that more than two-thirds of children in hospitals experience painful procedures with absolutely no pain management? Zero. They don't receive any pain management. This includes pain management during routine vaccinations, while undergoing medical procedures, after surgery, and of course, in the context of chronic pain and chronic disease. Out of all the countries on our globe, Canada is a leader in pain research and children's pain. But even though we have tons of books and information and research articles, one of the great challenges is that this information is not being placed into practice where practitioners can use it to, of course, help people with pain. Joining us this week to discuss children's pain and how to improve children's pain management is Dr. Christine Chambers. Christine is a clinical psychologist whose research is aimed at improving the assessment and the management of children's pain. She has published over 150 articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals and was identified as one of the top 10 most productive women in clinical psychology in all of Canada. Her Canadian Institute of Health initiative called It Doesn't Have to Hurt has generated over 150 million views worldwide, has trended on social media, has won multiple international awards, and of course was featured in the New York Times. Dr. Chambers holds leadership roles in the International Association for the Study of Pain, as well as the North American Pain School. Today, we'll talk about Dr. Chambers' latest project called Solutions for Kids in Pain, or what is simply known as the SKIP Project, whose mission is to improve children's pain management by mobilizing evidence-based solutions through knowledge, coordination, and collaboration. I really enjoyed this interview with Dr. Chambers. I know you will too. We cover a host of topics with regard to child pain. We also touch base on really important topics with regard to parenting a child with chronic pain. So lots of great take-homes for everyone, whether you're someone with pain or whether you're a clinician who treats parents or children with pain. Okay, I want to thank Christine for being on the podcast this week. She's doing amazing work. Make sure you check out her websites and, of course, check out the great infographic that is included with the podcast. You can find that by going to the IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. Okay, without further ado, let's begin with Dr. Christine Chambers. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you today. Oh, thanks for having me. We have touched on the topic of pediatric pain throughout the evolution of this podcast, which is almost now 150 episodes or so, but I first came across your work at World Conference, IASP. And then I started looking into your websites and started looking into your research. And I said, this is someone who I have to have on the show. And people are going to be really interested in some of the things you have. But obviously, you're a psychologist. I mentioned that during the introduction. Tell us how you first became interested in studying pediatric pain. Sure. Well, like a lot of things in life, it was purely by accident. I always knew I wanted to be a child psychologist. I read a book about a child psychologist when I was in grade six. And from that point on, every year I would fill out in my little annual yearbook, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always wrote child psychologist. And I didn't really understand the role that research played in becoming a psychologist until I got to university. And when I met with an undergraduate advisor, 
and said, you know, I want to be a child psychologist. What do I need to do? He told me what courses I needed to take. And he also said, you know, you're going to have to do research so that you can get into a B program. And I was like, okay, research, that sounds interesting. And I said, what child psychologist do you have in your department? And he's like, well, we have one and he's studying children's pain management. So I was like, I guess that's what I'll be doing. So that's how I started in the field as an 18-year-old undergraduate student. I connected with the mentor here in Halifax, Patrick McGraw, who was sort of one of the fathers of the field of pediatric pain research and had wonderful experience in a wonderful field to be connected to and decided to stick with that research area throughout my career. So I went on to do a PhD with a focus on pediatric pain in Vancouver, working with Ken Craig and have continued this research as a faculty member. Amazing. So you've had roots in this particular topic since you're 18. It's so interesting because oftentimes psychologists may discover pain somewhere in a fellowship way long, but you've been doing this since undergrad, which I think is just incredible. You're also obviously Canadian. Yes. <laughs> let's talk just for a moment. Have you noticed any differences in how, I guess let's talk about pediatric pain first, how pediatric pain, the care of pediatric pain is evolving in Canada versus let's say the U.S. or other parts of the world. Obviously, the U.S. were neighbors, but our healthcare systems can at times be vastly different. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there are a lot of differences in, in our healthcare systems. And obviously, there are sort of unique cultural issues that are present in any particular country that you're looking at. But interestingly enough, I think the challenges are quite similar globally when it comes to children's pain management, which is we have a lot of knowledge now. We've acquired a lot of scientific knowledge about how to better assess and manage children's pain. It's not to say that we've identified all the answers. I mean, there are lots of areas that where we still need to make a difference in terms of new knowledge. But I think one of the biggest issues that we're facing, not just in Canada, but worldwide, is making sure that knowledge is actually used to the benefit of children. So this whole challenge of mobilizing knowledge and getting scientific knowledge actually used. I love that word mobilizing knowledge. I think it goes so well, of course, with pain and people living well and living beyond their pain. I guess let's start here. Why is managing children's pain important to, for us to put it under the microscope and really look at it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's important and we're increasingly understanding why it's important with science that shows that it's not just a nice thing to do. And it's not just something that in the moment is a nice thing to do, that there are actually many negative, immediate and long-term effects of poorly managed pain early in life. So there have been studies showing that poorly managed pain in, say, premature babies in the neonatal intensive care unit is related to changes in the way their brain develops changes in how they feel pain later in life. And contrary to popular belief where people say, well, pain, it'll toughen you up. All of the science actually shows the reverse, that when you experience poorly managed pain, your body becomes uh, sensitized. It experiences more pain later. And I think we're understanding a lot more about how poorly managed postoperative pain can actually contribute to the development of chronic pain. So I think there's really compelling evidence now that there are long-term physiological effects and long-term psychological effects. I mean, it's sort of like a dirty little secret people don't talk about, which is like people don't like getting needles because they hurt, even adults. And one in 10 children and adults has a significant fear of needles that interferes with their ability to appropriately seek healthcare. So, you know, in the context of vaccine hesitancy right now, Again, it's not the number one reason why people don't get vaccinated. There are other concerns, but it is a barrier. And we have evidence-based solutions. 
or managing pain from procedures like vaccination. So, you know, I think there are real significant impacts to not managing pain properly. And we have enough science now. We have enough solutions. We should be using them. Yet it's so interesting because running into your work has caused me to even reflect on my own podcast. And looking back, as I mentioned, over these 150 episodes I've done, I'm like, wow, I haven't really, me personally, devoted too much attention to pain on the podcast. Like I said, thank you for opening my eyes to that. But why does it not get the attention it really deserves, either in healthcare or in the media? People are posting things about opioids and all sorts of things, heroin. And yet we may be priming the next generation to have more pain than where we currently are. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting about like, why doesn't pain get the attention that it deserves? And I think partly is for a very long time, we just assume, and I think to some degree, a lot of patients still assume that pain is part of healthcare, that you're having surgery, of course, you should have pain, that things that are good for you, interventions, treatment, diagnosis, well, it's going to hurt. So I think there's just this belief that's quite longstanding that that's just part of healthcare that you're strong. If you can withhold the pain, people will brag to me, oh, I had went for this dental procedure and I told them I didn't want any analgesia. And I'm like, well, that was stupid. Like, it's like a badge of honor for people. And they don't know the science that I know that shows that they're actually doing long-term damage to their body. And, you know, there's interesting it hasn't really been given a priority in hospitals. And we know that there was a study that looked at how much training different types of medical specialists received about pain in a study a couple of years ago. And there was a study that showed that veterinarians get five times the training in pain than people or doctors do, physicians, which is crazy. But when you think about it, in the sort of animal veterinarian culture, there's a lot of sensitivity to making sure your pet pain is managed. And friends of mine will send me screenshots of posters from waiting rooms in veterinarian clinics that we make a commitment to reducing your pet's pain and providing as much comfort as we can. And it just blows my mind that we've made those promises to our pets, but we haven't been making those promises to our kids. And I love that because you, of course, have parlayed that into it doesn't have to hurt which really you're telling people that we have research that shows we can effectively manage pain throughout the life cycle of a child's interaction in the healthcare system. And you mentioned, so you mentioned obviously needles, so obviously vaccinations, obviously as kids, we're going to receive needles or kids receive needles for certain interventions. But as I went through your website, you have some really great stories that quite honestly are quite tear-jerking and very emotional to read them. Some of your work delves into pediatric pain with regard to cancer where kids are receiving injections or central lines over and over and over, and they're being exposed to needles. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah. So, I mean, there are certain groups of children who are particularly at risk for pain and poorly managed pain. And we were funded through the Canadian Cancer Society to do a program specifically focused on raising awareness about the problem of cancer pain in kids. And this was obviously very meaningful and important work. And we had fantastic partners in this work. And you know, again, I think in oncology, they have been leaders in advancing procedure pain management because many of these children have to come back for repeated procedures. And if you're working with kids who need to come back for repeated procedures, you learn very quickly that if you do a bad job at managing one of them, your job next time becomes a million times harder. I often say, like, in the healthcare setting, 
we often just think about getting through this one procedure. We don't think nearly enough about what impact how we manage this one is going to have on whether that child ever actually comes back or who's going to have to manage that next time. So yeah, so kids' cancer pain has been an area that we've been particularly interested in. And one of my PhD students, Gary, uh, did some research attached to this work and was interesting for us because we did a survey of the sort of prevalence of pain in pediatric cancer patients who were undergoing active treatment, but who were also post-treatment. And it surprised us. Perry was really shocked to see how many children after treatment were still experiencing significant pain. And this has led her to develop a whole research program now on pain in cancer survivors. So there's a whole evolving literature that others are contributing to as well around how they, children with cancer are at risk for developing complicated pain syndromes post-treatment. And also there's some interesting meaning attached to what happens when you're a cancer survivor and you have an experience of pain. Mm. Is that the sign that a cancer is back? How do children and families deal with that anxiety? So it's a really complicated area and one that really does need more attention. So I'm thrilled to have Perry Tuttleman in my lab working in this space. Yeah. From that work, because all this great information is on your website at kidsinpain.ca. Everyone can check that out. But there's a couple other topics that come up. I want to talk about your work with regard to SKIP. But before we do that, the challenges of parenting a child with chronic pain or a child who has pain. Yeah. Parenting is like the hardest job in the world when everything goes as it should. And so when you layer on having a child who has some sort of chronic pain condition or chronic illness, it becomes extraordinarily challenging. And chronic pain is really tough for parents because it's one of those things I joke in parenting that when the right thing to do one day becomes the wrong thing to do another day. I mean, nobody sends you a memo or a courier you know, or an email the day that what you were doing that was good before then starts to become part of the problem. And in pain, we know that's the case. So For example, when your child is acutely ill and having significant pain or whatever, the right thing to do is to have them stay home from school and to restrict their activities and to try to figure out what's going on. The problem is when your child has a chronic pain condition, that approach of keeping them back from activities is actually not the approach that works in terms of dealing with pain, that the focus then becomes keeping them activated with school, keeping them activated with activities so they don't get deconditioned, helping them develop coping strategies, more of a rehab model. So for parents, that's a very tricky space to navigate. And there are some fantastic intervention programs that focus on helping to address that with parents. Yeah. Bring us modern day to your work with Skip and tell us what Skip is about. Right. So SKIP is a really exciting new national knowledge mobilization network that we've been funded for through the uh, Canadian federal government. It's a program called Networks of Centers of Excellence. And I'm a researcher. I've spent my whole life applying for grants. And all of these grants have always been to generate new knowledge, which is great. And it's critical. I mean, I'm not saying we don't need more science. We absolutely do. But I learned the hard way when I became a parent myself. I have four kids between the ages of eight and 13. And when we started having medical interactions, I realized that all this evidence that I had spent my whole career contributing to wasn't actually being used for the benefit of my own kids. And my husband's an anesthesiologist. So like between us, (laughs) we are an interdisciplinary pain team. And we struggled to make sure our kids received what I knew to be evidence-based pain management literature. So GIP really is an evolution of our passion and interest in getting knowledge out to those who need it. 
And unlike every other grant I've applied for, we're not allowed to actually do any science. We're not allowed to generate new knowledge. We're only allowed to mobilize it. So it's a partnership program where we are partnered with over 100 organizations, but our key partner is Children's Healthcare Canada, the not-for-profit organization that has 48 different health institutions under its umbrella, including all the children's hospitals in Canada. And our goal over the next four years is to improve pain management in as many of these health institutions as we can. And how we'll be doing that is by mobilizing all these evidence-based solutions we have and partnering with different types of people at all levels and all organizations. So for example, we're going to be creating a new hospital accreditation standard for pediatric pain management that will be embedded and integrated into the accreditation process for Canadian hospitals. So that's the top-down strategy. And then we'll also be working from the bottom up, making sure that patients and parents have the tools they need. We'll be building on our parent-based, it doesn't have to hurt initiative, arming parents with information. We have a partnership with a group called The Rounds who run essentially a Facebook for doctors. They have a large capture of family physicians and other types of physicians. So we'll be working with them to provide virtual education. So really what we're trying to do is think about who are all the knowledge users in the system who need to be armed with information and science about children's pain. Our strategic plan involves targeting knowledge mobilization activities to each of those groups. And then hopefully by tackling this problem at all levels, we'll be able to really move the needle to get pain better managed for kids. Another innovative part of what we are doing with SKIP is that we have a commitment to what is known as patients included, where patients and caregivers are embedded as partners, equal partners in all of our activities. So they are involved in management, they are involved in governance, we have parents and former patients on our board of directors. So this isn't just for patients, this is being done with patients, which gives it a lot of power and authenticity. How much of the initiative is, I guess, focused on educating practitioners who are in private practice or in any kind of practice? Yeah, I mean, obviously, health professionals, practitioners are a really important part of what we're doing. But I would say, you know, they're one of about five or six different knowledge user groups that we're targeting. So they're important, but we're also targeting policymakers, administrators, patients and caregivers themselves, and really the public at large, trying to raise awareness about the problem of pain and creating a sense of urgency. Because we think if all of these pieces work together, then change is most likely to happen. And, you know, I really have been a passionate believer in the power of patients and the power of parents. And with our It Doesn't Have to Hurt initiative, where we were targeting parents specifically with information about children's pain using blog posts and other types of social and digital media, it was interesting because we saw the power of how empowering parents can impact health professionals. So one parent shared with us in our evaluation of our initiative that uh, she'd gone into the emergency department, her baby needed an IV, and she said to the resident, well, I want to breastfeed my baby during the procedure because I've heard that it, that it doesn't have to hurt, and this is breastfeeding. And needles was an evidence-based pain strategy. And initially, the resident was like, no, we don't do that here. And certainly we heard lots of barriers that health professionals put up around this, like, oh, your baby will choke or, oh, your baby will associate breastfeeding with pain and there's no evidence to support any of that. So this mother who had followed our initiatives and felt well-informed sort of insisted and said, I want to do this. So the resident went and talked to someone and came back and was told, go ahead, let her do it. 
so she breastfed the baby during the procedure. And at the end of the procedure, the parent or the resident said, that was the best procedure I've ever done. And I'm going to recommend breastfeeding for IV insertion to all of my patients from now on who are breastfeeding, right? And so I love that story because maybe he had had a lecture about this in medical school, but probably not. And maybe he might go to a workshop or hear about it at a conference. But what was most impactful for this health professional was actually seeing it happen. And it probably changed how he's going to practice from now on. Just one parent. It's amazing. Yeah. What I love about your work is you're 100% right. We have so much information already. In, if you go into PubMed, you can spend literally years in there learning about pain. The research that has been done on pain, but we have yet to translate it into practice. How many years does it typically take for us to translate knowledge into clinical practice? Yeah, so there's various estimates that people have put forward, and the most consistent one is that it takes on average 17 years for the results of research to trickle their way to the front line. And that's an incredibly long time. So I often say to people, like, for those of us in pediatrics, that's an entire childhood, a whole generation of kids who miss out on the science that we already have. And for me, I've been doing this since I was 18, and I'm 44 now. So this means that it's taken over two decades for the results of some of my research to actually impact people. It's a leaky pipeline too. Only about 14% of clinical research ever finds its way to the front line. So we have a big problem here. And I think the general public is shocked when they hear this. I think they assume that when a scientific discovery is made, that it's automatically mobilized and integrated. And science just isn't set up that way, sadly. Yeah, I think it's so important. I talk about this all the time in the podcast. Like people say, why do you do this podcast? And I'm like, because there are brilliant people out there that are doing research that most people never hear about it and it doesn't get integrated into our daily practice. What are some of the challenges that you might come up against as you begin to roll this project out and disseminate some of this research across Canada? I mean, Canada is obviously a big country and there are even multiple systems embedded within Canada. Have you tried to foresee some of what might be down the road? Yeah. So, I mean, it is a big country and our health system, there's a national component to it, but most of our healthcare is managed at a provincial level, right? So you have different provinces with different approaches and different health institutions, different cultures, different priorities. And I think this is something that has begun to be better understood recently around the role of these types of individual, contextual, environmental types of factors that impact And so one of the things that we built into our application was it's not just enough to disseminate information, right? And to put tools out there or to let people know what they should be doing and what they could use to do it, that there really needs to be a human factor when it comes to promoting changes in practice. So what we built into our proposal and into SKIP was this whole idea of needing human beings as catalysts for uptake and and change of practice. So we have uh, what are called knowledge brokers that we're hiring regionally across all of our hubs who will be assigned to support different health institutions. And their job is to develop relationships with the different uh, champions and sites to figure out what they need and how it can be modified and what their unique issues are. And also to help move people along because some organizations are further along in terms of readiness to change than others. And so where do we focus our efforts and how do we move those institutions 
who this is not a priority at all for them? How do we move them just a little further along the path of being ready? So I think that the biggest barrier implementation is often that human factor. And I've learned so much about the importance of relationships, right? I mean, we don't talk about this enough that for change to happen, relationships need to be formed and human beings need to do that. And we're not always the best at, at um, again, science doesn't always reward us for taking the time to make these relations. I'll say like it's taken me over two decades to establish the relationships that I need to mobilize my knowledge. We need to create these hubs and platforms to make it easier. And that's what we're doing with Skip is all the new young scientists who are publishing great work, they shouldn't have to wait for 20 years to be at a point in their career where they can establish these relationships and move forward. So I think those are some of the barriers and I'm sure there'll be many more along the way that we have yet to even think of, but we've tried to anticipate what some of the the critical ones would be. When I look at your work, it reminds me a little bit of Lorma Mosley's work with pain revolution. When I looked at it, I was like, wow, this is like a pediatric pain revolution happening here. I think it's really, really cool. And pain education, obviously, is something that we need to obviously spread globally. When I look at your work, I'm like, I feel this, is, this could potentially be a model that other countries start to look at and move toward. Have you had any interest from other countries about your work and what's happening? Yeah, so while we were funded through a national knowledge mobilization program, we have definitely had our eye to potential global international impact. We were able to secure a number of international partners for our applications. So the International Association for the Study of Pain, Pain in Childhood, Special Interest Group. Actually, funny you would mention Lorimer, the Australian Pain Society has been incredibly supportive and a big part of our efforts. We have the Nordic Pain in Early Life Group, part of our work. And so we've started to lay the groundwork for these types of relationships. And yeah, I mean, we do feel our model has huge potential scale up globally. And also we think it has this partnered approach to knowledge mobilization. I mean, has a lot of potential in other health areas. I mean, pediatric pain is not the only area where we have this knowledge mobilization crisis. And so we're keen to work with other people who may be in a completely different health area, but who could potentially learn from what we're doing around children's sleep or children's behavior and even in the adult domain as well. Yeah, because there's so many overlaps with pediatric pain. I mean, so there's pediatric obesity and pediatric mental health conditions that are on the rise. So there's so many great avenues for this work to, you know, really grow and spread its wings. It's exciting. What would you recommend to a parent who potentially sees that their child maybe is developing chronic pain or has challenges when they go to the physician's office? Are there ways for a parent to interact with a professional who may not be as up to date on the type of evidence that you and your skip has been spreading around? Yeah. So, I mean, we're really hoping that we will be able to empower parents to feel comfortable to be able to bring evidence forward in ways that are accessible for their physician or other healthcare providers. I mean, it's a tricky conversation, right? There's huge hierarchies in medicine and healthcare and patients are extremely vulnerable. And you sometimes hear stories of patients who mocked when they bring in information and the doctor sort of like, you know, well, I'm the doctor. So we appreciate that we are need to change the system so that patients don't get put in a situation where are feeling like they can't advocate for the care they want. But I tell parents all the time that whether you're having a procedure or your child's having surgery, just to ask a simple question to get people to stop and think. So the question is, what are we going to do about my child's pain? 
So it sets an expectation. It's not, are we going to do something about my child's pain? It's like, what are we going to do to manage my child's pain? And sometimes that's enough of a prompt to get somebody to think differently around what could we do here? We think this needs to be done quickly, but could we use the topical anesthetic and take the time necessary? So I do say to parents, don't be afraid to ask that. I've asked it on many occasions, like, hold on, people. What are we going to do about my child's pain? Yeah. This is another topic. I don't know if you're doing this type of research and how you've included this in Skip It All, but children of parents with chronic pain. So kids that may not have chronic pain themselves, but their parents do have chronic pain. So they're obviously exposed to a context of living with chronic pain in some way in their home. Yeah. So this is actually something that's a big interest for us right now. And we've done some work in, so I did an early study like 20 years ago with my, one of my first, uh, I think it was my first honor student in Vancouver on this topic. And Kristen Higgins, who's a PhD student in my lab, who has just defended her dissertation, her whole dissertation was focused on the impact of parent chronic pain on, on kids. So we published a systematic review in pain a couple of years ago. And indeed, the review of existing studies showed that these children are highly at risk for a whole host of pain problems, as well as behavioral and emotional challenges um, as well. And so for Kristen's dissertation, she ran a really impressive lab-based study where she recruited 70 parents who had chronic pain and their kids to come into the lab. And she did some lab-based cold presser testing and studied reactions and responses and questionnaires and so on. And I'll tell you, we've run thousands of kids through research studies in my lab over the years and very challenging patient populations like cancer and other chronic illnesses and, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis. And I'm always on call, right, when we have kids in the lab because you never know what's going to happen and sometimes challenging situations arise. It's rare that I get a call, but when Kristen was running her study, it was basically like one out of every four or five participants, there was some very challenging issue around mental health or pain or suicidality or some sort of child protection issue. And we just couldn't believe it. We had never had this frequency of challenges. And certainly her study results really supported that this is a group that is highly at risk. And also it was interesting because when we're running kids from other clinics or patient populations, like I know who to follow up with. I follow up with their oncologist or I follow up with their rheumatologist. In this case, it wasn't the kids who were the patients, it was the parents. And so these kids were not necessarily plugged into any sort of health care provider. They weren't on anyone's radar. And when we would connect with the adult pain clinicians who were the clinicians caring for the parent and say, like, you know, are you aware? They're like, well, we never talk to our patients about what's going on with their kids. And so I think this is a huge gap in terms of our understanding of what we need to do to prevent and treat this population of kids who are really at risk. So I'm really hoping, and there's some other people who've done really good work in this space, like Anna Wilson and Amanda Stone. And I think we're at a point now where we really do need to develop and evaluate and implement some robust intervention and prevention programs for children whose parents have chronic pain. Yeah. It really brings in a little bit of the primary care aspect into it because, of course, this can probably go two ways. It can be screened, obviously, when the adult goes to, let's say, primary care or the pain, quote unquote, pain doctor, or when the child is going for their annual pediatric visit to start to screen for these types of what's happening in the home. How is everything at home? And is it having an impact on your child, so to speak? And then we can start to slow down, obviously, this progression that happens. Can you share with us maybe one or two success stories that when you look back, you're like, wow, 
my work really impacted, like my work came to life in this particular. So you gave us one case with the breastfeeding, but anything else come to mind? Well, I mean, there were so many amazing things that happened as part of our It Doesn't Have to Hurt project, and certainly now as solutions for kids in pain. And I'll share two, one from each of those initiatives. So first with It Doesn't Have to Hurt, I mean, one of the things that we built into our social media initiative was an opportunity to have Twitter parties or Twitter chats where parents could come online and advertise time and use our hashtag, It Doesn't Have to Hurt. And we brought the scientists online too, and so they could ask questions around things they'd heard and were wondering about. And there was real live engagement between scientists and parents, which was amazing. And it was funny because Twitter Canada saw what we were doing and how we were using their platform to spread the word. And they invited us to do one of our virtual Twitter parties from their headquarters in Toronto. So we brought our whole It Doesn't Have to Hurt team together. It had been a completely virtual project. All the people who'd been working on it had never met. So we were able to get some special funding to bring everybody together. So not only did we have an actual Twitter party at Twitter Canada, but the most important part of what they did was they allowed us to use their proprietary uh, video Q&A app that they've only enabled for celebrities and politicians so that not only could we answer parents' questions by typing, we were able to videotape our answers and answer parents' questions that way. So the engagement we had that on that particular evening was huge. And it was just amazing. The Canadian parents reaching out were able to answer their questions and talk about shrinking that 17-year gap, right? It's like instantaneous interaction and parents sharing information with one another. So I think from that perspective, that was a real success story in terms of having a lot more visibility for children's pain is like a niche issue. The fact that a major social media company would open its doors and allow us to use its platform in this way was exciting. With um, solutions for kids in pain, I mean, we're just getting started and already there's been so many things that have been really exciting. But I will say uh, probably the most exciting moment so far for our team was being invited to be guests of one of the senators in the Senate of Canada. So Senator Colin Deacon in Ottawa on April 30th has been following our work before he was even a senator and was really impressed by the sort of public-private partnership that we had developed where it doesn't have to hurt and then extended solutions for kids in pain. And so he invited our group to Ottawa. We had individual meetings. We had basically a lobby day where we had members of our team, including patients and caregivers, actually meet with MPs and senators and sort of spread the word. And then he invited us all into the Senate when it was sitting and made a speech about what we were doing and why this sort of partnered approach to knowledge mobilization is so effective. And it was an inspiring moment and really, I guess, really excited us about the potential that we have here with this four-year grant to really make a difference for kids in pain. Yeah, the work between the grant you have going on and the social media work you've done, and of course, all the research you have that backs it up, you really have a really wonderful mix of things that are happening. I'm excited to watch your work and see how it develops. And please, you know, keep in touch with us, but let everyone know how they can learn more about you, all your information, your websites and everything. Sure. So for our Solutions for Kids in Pain or SKIP initiative, you can come to www.kidsinpain.ca. We also are active on all social channels using the handle at Kids in Pain. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. C. Chambers, and we also have a website, it doesn't have to hurt.ca. So we use the hashtag, it doesn't have to hurt to tweet about anything related to children's pain. So if ever you want to join in on a conversation online, feel free to do so. And I just want to thank you, Joe, for the knowledge mobilization you're doing. 
putting yourself out there, creating this podcast that has a tremendous reach is such a critical part of, of helping to shrink this gap between science and practice. So thank you. Thank you. I, of course, this podcast, I could not do it without, obviously, people who care about pain researchers, practitioners, people just like Dr. Christine Chambers. Make sure you go online and check out kidsinpain.ca. You can, of course, tweet or check out the handle kidsinpain or at kidsinpain. Of course, hashtag it doesn't have to hurt. If you know practitioners, physical therapists, mental health professionals, other professionals who are interested in kids in pain, share this information with them. So share this information on Facebook, on Twitter, throw it into a Facebook group where people are talking about kids in pain, because I think this work is really, really special. And I'm so happy to be sharing this today. Okay. On behalf of Dr. Christine and myself, I wish you a great week and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.